Hello, this is your host, Donna Barr, and welcome to A Bazillion Ghost Stories. Does anybody really know a bazillion ghost stories? But then again, aren't all stories set in the past ghost stories? I swear a lot of these podcasts are bringing up memories from my own life. Uh, These crime podcasts I'm listening to and ghost podcasts. And this one mentioned uh, the lady of the Winchester house and the fact that she was four foot ten. And when I was in basic training in the army, our DI, our drill sergeant, was four foot ten. She was a little half Japanese, half Korean, Hawaiian lady. And she was a kind of a hoot. She had some idiosyncrasies, like she wouldn't let us take a photo of her. And the only time I got a photo of her, and I've still got it, was at a little party after the uh, at the, after the end of basic training because women will have any excuse for having a party and giving each other presents. So we're sitting around there in our jammies and nightgowns, and she's there too, and we got her. I don't know what possessed us. I think it was a joke. We got because I think it was because she had one of these ratty old nightgowns that she really liked. So we decided to get her something nice. So we got a really frilly pink nightgown and uh, she saw we were going to take a photo so she held it up in front of her face real quick so that's the only photo i have of her uh we called her the uo which means unauthorized object because that was the little bits of lint and things they might find on your bed and gig you for them you know more points toward having to do uh more kp than we usually did which i think i did it eight times when i was in basic training because who else did we have and she wore dress grannies, which looked like your uh, regular black shoes that people used to wear with their green uniforms back then. But hers had high heels, which made her a whole, like, maybe uh, five feet high. And uh, I do remember one time on the training course when I was trying to read the compass and I got myself completely turned around and I was in the bottom of a gully. Now, this was in October or November or something like that. There's no snakes out there. And, uh, and the, my DI, I almost gave you her name there, she uh, she stood up on the top of the gulch and she said, what you doing down there? You're going to get out of there. And I said, no, no, it's fine. I'll figure it out. She said, there's snakes down there. And I said, ain't no snakes. It's November. They always snakes. <laughs> so maybe she's got a point. Listening to something about Bigfoot or Yeti or giant footprints, uh, we had somebody up here come running up to me and said that they found Bigfoot footprints on the beach, and those could be anything. Uh, I think it was before the snow or something like that. You know, these things will melt down. Um, I did find out one winter in the thick snow, there was fairy hoof prints across the front of our front yard. Now, they look like tiny horse hooves, complete with horseshoes. But what happens is when cats run across a yard, they press down with their toes the outsides of their feet on their print. You can't see that unless you get some melting. So it expands a bit and it reveals the hard edge, the hard front edge of the footprint. And you get tiny shod fairy hoof prints 
which is just cats in snow. Speaking of human encounters with perhaps scary animals, I uh, came up with the idea after watching photographers who were scratching lions and hyenas and rhinos, and these were basically wild animals or animals that barely knew humans except when they wandered through their preserves. And they seemed perfectly happy to not charge anybody or bite them. It was, it was a matter of scratch my neck, scratch my neck, belly, my, my chest, my chin, Give me, give me them scritchies. And this will even be done with sharks and alligators and moray eels. They all love this. And so I figure, you know, let's say you're in the grip of some predator and you ain't going to do you any good to fight him. You just make him mad and it's just going to be worse for you. So you ain't got nothing to lose. Put your fingers up in their ears and start to scratch their ears. You know, give them that ear rub and maybe the tops of their eyebrows and heads. Uh, yeah, it's going to be hurting, but it's better than nothing. And uh, I just wonder, and maybe if somebody put on a real um, armor-like suit to try this out, find out that you can stop a predator from biting you by scratching their ears and their head and the back of their neck. And uh, just, I mean, you want to eat something when you're getting scritchies? And then move on to the shoulders and bellies and everything else. And I kind of have a question, and I asked Mary Roach over on Twitter, um... I wonder how much of domestication is the fact that we can give scritchies. We can scratch them with our fingers. There isn't any other animal can really do that. Chimps, maybe gorillas, but we can... Humans have a real expert ability to get in there and scratch for pleasure. And uh, I wonder how many animals came in from the wild, because once you've had that done, uh, you want more. Oh, this is kind of funny. Um... I don't bother Mary Roach over on Twitter very often. She wrote these wonderful books like, uh, you know, Stiff, which is about death. Uh, she's, she's an amazing writer and very funny. Um, and I don't bother her too much, but every once in a while I have to send her something which, that I think is amusing. And she always answered. So uh, I gave her my little suggestion about the domestication and the scritchies. And she came back and said, you know... It probably would work, but it would take incredible presence of mind. Here's another animal-related moment. I think we've all seen at least the cartoon Pinocchio, and you might want to read the original Italian, uh, at least the translation if you can't read it in the original, uh, of Pinocchio. And... I was reading a book the other day called Long Live Latin by Nicola Gardinet, who is an Italian gentleman, and he was going on about all the wonderful things that Latin did for our language and so many other Western European languages that it's not really useless or dead. And uh, it's really more a book about the literature of uh, the Romans and the people who originally wrote in the language than it is about the language itself. But I came across something which I wasn't aware of before. There is a writer called uh, Apuleius who wrote about a young man called Lucius who was trying to learn how to turn himself into a bird or something else by choice. He was not very good at the magic. We're getting kind of into Sorcerer's Apprentice territory here. And... What he did was ask his, his girl to bring him some ointment, but she brought him the wrong ointment. It turned him into a donkey. 
And everything about being a donkey just is so much a reminder of what happens in the Pinocchio story in the cartoon when he knows he gets turned into a donkey. And the other thing about it is, um, remember in The Emperor's New Groove, when they're trying to kill the emperor, and a llama, he's supposed to be dead. Well, it's the wrong ointment. Uh, it looks like all of this goes back to Apuleius and the idea of fooling around with magic when you shouldn't have been doing that. Dan found something on the internet the other day. It was a story about Raquel Welch when she was in The Three Musketeers uh, by Richard Lester as the director. And one of the costume people said that in the course of her working in the movie, her bra tore, the uh, Raquel Welch's bra tore. And she immediately took off the costume, took her old, and it was an old ratty bra that had been repaired about five times. And she took out her little sewing kit and Raquel Welch sewed up her bra. And she said, this thing was expensive and it, it's the only one I really like. So she wore it every day and washed it every day and sewed it back up again. And this reminds me that I don't know what you guys think that women wear all the time. They might wear Victoria's Secret on a date, but I'll tell you, we got some of the rattiest old underwear that we sew up and tie up and put back together because undies can be expensive. And when you get a comfortable fit, you're going to make these things work. So uh, maybe don't think about what women are wearing beneath their clothes because, uh, you know, you, you may wear your ratty t-shirts until they got holes in them, but uh, women will wear white bras until they're gray and black bras until they're gray and just keep sewing them up. And, and we take all of the uh, underwiring out of them. And we just make them more comfortable and fit better by sewing at them. And we do it for years while the things fall apart. So uh, in everyday use, women do not wear sexy underwear. In fact, you don't want to know what's under there. Listening to another podcast about serial killers. And I don't know if any of you know about H.H. H. Holmes but he's a guy who built himself a murder castle in Chicago, basically so that he could get rid of the victims of insurance scams and theft. And when you read about what he did in this place, how he put gas jets he could turn on and off from a central office, and he made money off the, the articulated skeletons of the people he'd killed, um, I'll tell you something. You take a look at the concentration camps and the absolutely turning human lives and human bodies into cash. Uh, it, it, goes, it goes beyond Slaughterhouse. It really is H.H. H. Holmes. And, of course, he's working in Chicago where you have all these meat industries. And the whole idea of stripping down bodies, whether animal or human, but then again, we're all animal, uh, just so you can make money off them... Uh, you wonder how much of the, the actual building of the, of the concentration camps came out of the atmosphere of Chicago and H.H. H. Holmes. I was just talking about Disney and uh, the concentration camps, and we're going to kind of have an intersection here 
along with a guy on uh, TikTok who does the history of the Romani people. And he was pointing out that Quasimodo in the movie The Hunchback of Notre Dame is white where his Romani family, uh, well, is Romani. And uh, he was not happy with this because this adds to the trope about um, Romani people stealing white children, uh, which is in the book. Although in the movie, they adopt him. And uh, a lot of people who were uh, Romani came on and said, well, the reason we end up with other children is not because anybody's stealing kids. It's because people from these other communities abandon their children. And you know darn well that uh, we got a long tradition of that in Europe and in the Americas of abandoning our kids. Uh, this is one thing that um, a lot of people around the world did not understand. It's like, you know, the British sending their kids away to boarding schools and Americans dumping their kids. And they don't understand this business about kids being dumpable or being commodities. But uh, what they were going for in Disney was the tradition of taking in kids who didn't have homes and uh, had no parents and had nobody to, to help them out. And they were often abandoned. And uh, there is a long tradition among, uh, how do I put this, people of color, and it's including black people and natives of many places, and the Romney, um, the Rom and the Dom, and uh, the Sinti, uh, as they're differently called, of uh, you just don't abandon children. And it doesn't matter if it's yours or not. If that kid is uh, left wandering, starving, and cold, you gotta help. And, of course, Quasimodo would have been abandoned because he would have been perceived as product of the devil, a crippled child. And uh, so somebody would have to take him in and take care of him. I was thinking about how I always found libraries to be so very haunted. You go up in those things and you just know there are voices and whispers. There's something up in there that's alive and or dead. And then I was thinking about the North Olympic library system and the library here in Clallam Bay. And they're not haunted. They don't have any of that haunted feeling. And then I remembered the places that I thought were haunted, the libraries, the one at Ohio State and the Carnegie Library I grew up with. And one of the things in those libraries was that they were bound with animal skin in many cases. And we do know that without cattle, there would have been no books in the Middle Ages, no uh, parchment. And so I'm wondering when it comes to hauntings in libraries, rather than looking or listening for footsteps, we should be listening for little cloven hooves from all the little dead calves. Click, click. I've recently been reading studies that are correlating walking and Alzheimer's. 
and saying that the more you walk, the less likely you are to slide into brain rot. And we are an animal that evolved to walk and walk and walk and constantly be aware of our surroundings and constantly be moving. And nature just doesn't use what isn't going to be used. You know, if you use it or lose it. And if you're not walking, you're not going to be using that brain and that connections. So I'm not saying this has happened, but you know how the Egyptians, when they mummified a body, they always took the brain out. It's like, how can you think that the brain was useless? We all think with our brains, you know, we put our hands to our heads and everything. We know that we think with that. And when it comes down to the heart or the mind or anything like this, very often you're getting bad translations. But did somebody discover that the brain was associated with walking? And if you took it out, the dead person would not walk? Just asking. It's recently been discovered how Roman concrete worked. Uh, it had to do with quicklime and the fact that if it starts to degrade, the quicklime in the mix, which was still dry, would activate and lock it even harder. This is why we have Roman causeways uh, and Roman buildings that still stuck and held and because of this concrete mix. And I found out that people even recently, would, in the course of dredging um, salt sand, uh, they'd use that to sell to people who are using it for concrete. And you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to use salt sand. Now, that might not have hurt if you were going for Roman concrete. But we put rebar in a concrete. And what happens is the salt eats away at the rebar until the concrete collapses. We don't have the same kind of concrete. But now it makes me wonder if it wasn't a matter of genius um, putting together the recipe for Roman concrete. You really kind of wonder if somebody was trying to sell off cheap, unwashed salt sand uh, after a dredging in place of good, dry, quarried sand. And accidentally, this made a concrete that would last the centuries. So I'm really, knowing, knowing how very often the construction business works, uh, maybe somebody was getting away with selling the salt sand and uh, scraping off the profits for the same payment that they would have gotten for good, clean quarried sand. And they accidentally came up with something that was even better. But, you know, if they had been caught selling this stuff expensively, when it was much more cheap, uh, there would have been more than one reason for keeping that recipe a secret. Would you like to be part of this podcast? You can go to anchor.fm slash Donna-Bar and you can leave me a voice message with your story that can become part of this podcast. If you would rather 
have me read it, send a PDF or PDFA, double spaced, larger type to donabar01 at gmail.com. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash donabar. And finally, if you would like to know anything about what I've done in my life that has to do with my work, conventions, etc., go to donabar.com. Hope to see you there. I will also put all this information in the program notes. A spooky 